Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. My name's Rosemary Lister, and I'm the Professor of Climate and Environmental Law at the University of Sydney Law School. Welcome to the Centre, the Australian Centre for Climate and Environmental Law, our 2018 annual Distinguished Speaker event, which will be delivered, as you all know, by Professor Liz Fisher from the University of, o of Oxford. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet this evening, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and future, and acknowledge that this place has been a site for discussion and learning, including about the environment for tens of thousands of years. The Centre is pleased to partner this evening with Sydney Ideas to host this event. We were very pleased to have received 750 enrolments, which is a record um, for us to hear Professor Fisher's address this evening. And we're really not that surprised to have received this level of interest from the public given the parlous state of climate change law and policy in Australia at the, mo at the moment. The Morrison government and the Turnbull government immediately before that is in the grip of a far-right fossil fuel-influenced in lobby group which has militated against and destroyed Australia's efforts to deal effectively with climate change over the past decade. Last week, the Sydney Environment Institute hosted one of the world's most celebrated climate justice campaigners, Mr. Anote Tong, the former president of Kiribati, at a public event which many of you may have attended. Mr. Tong was in Australia to draw attention to the current and future threats of climate change to Pacific Island nations. As has been reported widely in the media, Mr. Tong was insulted by the current Minister for the Environment, Melissa Price, at a restaurant in Canberra. I want to repeat the opening remarks made by, by Professor David Schlossberg, Professor of Environmental Politics at the University, in his opening address. He spoke out against the kind of insensitivity shown, the absolute lack of care or empathy about a situation that Australian policies help to create. It's not just about our Minister for the Environment being a former lawyer for the coal industry. It's about a lack of recognition of the situation of our Pacific neighbours, a lack of self-reflection and knowledge about the historical relationship and impact of Australian policies, and again, very frankly, a basic lack of decency. We as researchers and teachers and the university, at the University of Sydney take note of this and remember that it was Prime Minister Scott Morrison who held up a lump of coal in the Australian Parliament last year. His words were, don't be afraid, don't be scared, it won't hurt you, as Barnaby Joyce and Christopher Pine laughed and scoffed on the front bench. Well, when it comes to our energy, climate and coal mining policies, we need to be constantly reminded that the decisions which we take or fail to take have consequences globally 
including for our Pacific neighbours, in terms of climate change impacts. As Professor Amartya Sen, Nobel Prize winner and Professor of Philosophy and Economics at Harvard University has said, there is clearly an important issue in the neglect of the interests and perspectives of those who are not parties to the social contract of a polity, but who bear some of the consequences of the decisions taken in that particular polity. The neighbourhood that is constructed by our relations with different people is something that has pervasive relevance to the understanding of justice in general, particularly so in the contemporary world. I've been researching and teaching in the area of energy and climate law at Sydney Law School for the past 23 years. I've been a witness to the following scenarios in Australia's climate law and policy arena. Just to name a few, the lack of effective action on climate change by the Howard government for almost a decade, including resiling from the Kyoto Protocol, the decisions by Labor state governments in 2006 to establish a national emissions trading scheme, the agreement by the Howard government in 2007, including Tony Abbott, to introduce an emissions trading scheme on the 1st of July 2012, the introdu introduction by the Gillard government of an emissions trading scheme on the 1st of July 2012 following the failed attempts of the Rudd government, and the repeal of that emissions trading scheme, which comprised 21 acts of the Commonwealth Parliament by the Abbott government with effect from the 1st of July 2014, and finally and most recently the failure of Malcolm Turnbull to persuade his own party of the very basic climate change elements of the National Energy Guarantee. As Professor Fisher will tell you, we now have no effective federal climate change policy and legislation in place. But we do have a government that chants the mantra of being focused on low electricity prices. This is at a time when last week Credit Suisse in its 2018 Global Wealth Report identified Australia as the country with the highest median wealth per adult in the world. I'm not denying that there are many people who are struggling to meet the cost of living, but I'm certain that we can do better as a nation to devise a well-balanced law and policy framework which better reflects the needs of current and future generations of people and ecosystems and which can help to mitigate the existing and future consequences of climate change on them. As Mr. Tong wisely commented last, last week, he hasn't come here to fight the Australian government on its policies. As he said, that's the task of Australian voters. Well, it's now my great pleasure to introduce Professor Liz Fisher. Professor Fisher is Professor of Environmental Law at the University of Oxford's Corpus Christi College and Faculty of Law. Professor Fisher graduated with a, a combined Bachelor of Arts and Law degree from the University of New South Wales and a Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Oxford. She researches in the areas of environmental law and administrative law, exploring the interrelationship between law administration and regulatory problems in different legal cultures. Her 2007 book, Risk Regulation and Administrative Constitutionalism, 
won the SLS Peter Burke's Prize for Outstanding Legal Scholarship in 2008. She is author of Environmental Law, a very short introduction, published by Oxford University Press in 2017, and co-author of Fisher, Lang and Scottford, Environmental Law, Text, Cases and Materials, also published by Oxford University Press. She is general editor of one of the world's most prestigious environmental law journals, the Journal of Environmental Law, and has served as the editor of the Legislation and Reports section of the Modern Law Review. Professor Fisher has won teaching awards and served as Vice Dean of the Law Faculty at Oxford from 2013 to 16. She's currently writing a book with Professor Sid Shapiro at the Wake Forest School of Law in the United States about reimagining US administrative law. Please welcome Professor Fisher to the podium to, deli to deliver her distinguished address entitled Why Climate Change Law is a Hot Debate. Welcome. Thank you. Um, it's a great honor to be here. In early October, the IPCC released their report with this very long title, Global Warming of 1.5%, a special report on the impacts of that. And that report makes both shocking but also unsurprising reading. It makes shocking reading because it is a statement of the serious environmental risks, public health risks, food security risks, economic risks from global warming. It is also shocking reading because it is a reminder that to not have that temperature rise, there needs to be unprecedented changes in infrastructure and a transition to a low-carbon economy. But it is also not surprising. So we have this report. But in actual fact, since the early 90s, and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, it has been internationally recognized that climate change is a serious problem. And of course, the Paris Agreement in 2015 has in it Article 2, which recognizes the importance of trying to the best endeavors of keeping temperature change below 2 degrees. And it's not just that we have these international agreements. There are now, as the LSE Grantham Institute highlights, over 1,400 pieces of climate change legislation across the world. And just this is the really exciting bit. Um, we have the Climate Change Act 2008 in the UK. We have New Zealand legislation. Um, and as many of you may know, they're currently working on a zero carbon bill. We have directives from the EU on emission trading schemes. We have directives on renewable energy. We have, it keeps on going. <laughs> um, here are the, the, the UK greenhouse gas trading emission regulations. Um, and I could go on. And it's not only that what recent court cases across the world make clear that it's not enough just to have these laws on the books. In 
2015, a Pakistani High Court ruled that the failure of the Pakistani government to act on climate change was a breach of the fundamental right to life of its citizens. Likewise, in early October, um, the Court of Appeal of the Hague District Court ruled that the failure of the Dutch government to meet its target for emissions reduction by 2020 was a breach of Article 2, the right to life, and Article 8, the right to a family life of the European Convention of Human Rights. And then we come to Australia. Um, and if we look at Australia, there is some legislation. We have a very significant piece of legislation in Victoria, the Climate Change Act 2017, that I will come back to. But at the federal government level, there is not much. We have the Renewable Energy Electricity Act, which is encouraging a shift to renewable energy. We have a reporting act. We have an act encouraging the use of carbon offsets. We have an act that sets up the Climate Change Authority. But as the 2017 Review of Climate Change Policies in at the federal level makes clear, the main approach is a policy-led approach. And what is also clear from emission projections also published last year is it's not quite obvious how Australia is going to reduce its emissions. And so what I want to make an argument for tonight is an argument for federal climate change legislation. I want to explain what I mean by legislation. I want to give five reasons why I think such legislation is important. And I want to show how those five reasons tell us about what that substance should be. Now, at this stage, you're probably thinking two things. The first thing is you're probably thinking, gee, she hasn't been following Australian politics. Um, but as the essayist Rebecca Solnit points out, the physics of climate change is inevitable, but politics is not. And this is a point I want to return to later in the lecture. The other thing you might be thinking is, oh dear, she sees legislation as a magic wand, just like an international treaty. Wave it and climate change will go away. Um, as will also become clear, that is not what I'm arguing. Okay, so to begin with, what do I mean by legislation? Now, the first thing you're probably thinking is, oh dear, this is going to be really, really dull. If she would talk about some court cases, that's quite exciting. But legislation, it's dull. The second thing is that we tend to think of legislation as rather intellectually dubious. Coming back to the magic wand, we think it's about mechanistic social change. Um, and we kind of think of Hayek's critique of kind of planning economies. But that's not what legislation is. As the legal philosopher Jeremy Waldron points out, legislation is something created by a careful and laborious process. And that process is at the heart of constitutional government. It is not just a decree. It needs to be drafted. 
It needs to be debated. It needs to go through that process. And that process is important within a constitutional democracy like this. The second important thing about legislation is that it's not sort of kicking out the role for other parts of government. It's doing the opposite. Legislation creates a framework for the role of public administration and also a role for the courts in interpreting that legislation and making sense of it and considering appeals under it. And legislation is not just policy. Um, in, if anyone here practices environmental law and you have to deal with policy, a lot of it, I work mainly with UK policy, is it reads like an Oxford, a bad Oxford tutorial essay. The person who wrote it's quite bright, um, but they didn't have enough time and they rushed the end of it. Um, and legislation may not be perfect, but it does, you know, it's not that. Okay, so that's what I mean by legislation. Let me now move to the five reasons why I think legislation is important. And the first reason is because climate change is what is called a tragedy of the commons. That phrase was coined by a scientist, Garrett Hardin, and he used it to describe problems where you have a common resource, an open field, and everyone has a self-interest in putting their cows on those fields. The problem is, is if everyone does that, they overuse the resource and it collapses. And we can see the same with the air. Everyone has an interest in polluting it, um, and at some point, that degrades air quality. And climate change is a global example of that. Now, the problem when we think about tragedy of the commons is it sounds very abstract. Hardin's solution, which I'll come back to in a moment, was government intervention. But we, before we get that there, it's important to see that tragedies of the common happen in the real world, with real people, with real lives. And the best way I find to illustrate that is with a story from the street I live in, in Oxford. Um, and here it is. Um, and when I moved in 20 years ago, it's a, it's a long, narrow Victorian street. Um, and you can't park cars on either side. Um, and a car still got through, gets through. And at that time, that didn't matter, because there weren't many cars. Um, and so people would park half on, half off, um, and it was fine. There were passing places, and um, you know, we'd close the street, we had street parties, and we were really proud that we could self-regulate. Fast forward a decade, and things were different. The street was completely parked up, and, and what this is showing is parking on the corners as well. And what this meant is not only were there no par parking places, but there were also no passing places. So cars would get into this area and they would get gridlocked. Now, the reason this happened was people were living their lives. Some people were, you know, commuting. Some people were visiting local shops. Um, houses had two people working in different places. 
And every person, if you ask them, why are you using your car, they would give an honest and, and, and rational answer. So after a lot of kind of public controversy, the local council proposed what is the typical solution to this, which is to introduce a residence parking scheme. And what then happened was seven years of fierce controversy. Um, and it began, and I, I found this, where, oh no, where did it go? Ah, oh, here we are. Um, there was a council election coming up, and I got this through the door. It's just another tax. I can't think where we've seen this technique before. Um, and so the argument was there isn't a parking problem in the street. It's just that um, the council wants to raise money from car parking permits. Um, there were arguments that, in actual fact, there should be no car parking in the street, which pe people weren't. And so the debate went on about what government intervention should look like. That was the street on Saturday. Regulation was introduced, and the problem was addressed. Now, I'm not saying it was addressed forever, because actually, over time, more cars are now parking back in the street. Um, but the point of this, of tragedies of the commons, is legislation is needed. The only way in the street you could deal with that oversupply was government intervention, who said who could actually park there. But as soon as government intervenes, that is going to be controversial. That is going to raise resentment. It will create winners and losers. So it's necessary, but it is not a kind of win-win solution. And that brings me to my second point about why legislation is needed. It's needed for legitimacy and the rule of law. If you're going to deal with the tragedy of the commons, you need to do it at the heart of the constitutional order. And this comes back to my point about legislation. It needs to go through the Houses of Parliament. It needs to be very clear that what is being created is law that will bind people and that will be enforced. And by doing it through legislation, that is what you are doing. Um, so I have a picture here of Justiciator and the rule of law. Let me just... Part of legislation is making law calculable. And that comes to my third reason about why legislation is so important. And that is to do with markets. So at the moment, if you look at the debate in Australia, and if you read something like the 2017 Review of Climate Change legislation, it seems that what it is doing is it is the environment versus the economy. And coming back to my picture of it's just a tax, it gives the impression that to deal with environmental problems is actually to make everyone economically worse off. But that is not only an oversimplification, but it's a misrepre misrepresentation of what markets are about. And if we take, for example, the 
recent report from the ACCC on Australia's electricity market. It points to the fact that the issue of electricity costs is the product of many different factors with a long historical vintage. Environmental issues are only a tiny part of that. And what that report highlights is when we're thinking about well, when we're thinking about the economy, we're not thinking about the economy. We're thinking about different markets. An energy market is very different from a market for food or a market for something else. And the second thing is those markets are embedded in cultures and in societies. Now, if we turn to kind of economic sociology, someone like Neil Fligstein points out that markets are places of structured exchange. That's what a market is. It's a place that people can go to buy and sell things. And for it to be structured, you need rules to guide decision making, and you need information. It's very hard to go to a market if you don't know what you're looking for and you don't know what the prices are.、Um, and so you need to construct markets. And so, for example, the national energy market in this country is a construction. Of law of really the last sort of 25 years.、Um, so, in thinking about markets and legislation, there are two things to note. First of all, the role of information, and what we can see from reports、um, is that within these markets, and people in thinking about investing, they are looking ahead to the problem of stranded assets.、Um, yesterday. In the UK, Client Earth、um, started a legal action as the shareholder of an energy company because that energy company was making a decision to invest in a coal-fired power station in Poland. And the argument of Client Earth was: this is a stranded asset. It's going to be a white elephant. There is no money to be made here. As shareholders, we are not happy. And we can see that happening across the world. The second thing. Is markets need stability? They need calculability, and particularly markets like energy, where massive infrastructure investments are being made, and people need to know that they're going to be able to make money on them.、Um, and what we see from reports such as the Finkel Review in 2017 and the International Energy Agency is they're both crying out of saying. We need certainty about the future direction of climate policy in this country to aid investment. So, legislation has an important role in creating markets and encouraging investments, and we can see that in other jurisdictions. So that's reason number three.、Um, reason number four. For legislation, energy transitions are, by their very nature, disruptive. You need to change social practices, which have been based on intensive use of energy from carbon, and you need to change them. And that process of, of disruption is not about waving a magic wand. And so, it's not enough just to have a decree. Or a piece of legislation, you also need a framework 
for figuring out how any particular decision in a transition is going to act. You know, is it a good decision? Is it a bad decision? Um, so the example here, and in this picture, if you if you squint, you'll see there are some wind turbines in the background there. Um, is wind turbines in the UK? Um, so in the second quarter of 2018, about 31% of energy production on the national grid now comes from renewables, and that is mainly wind energy, which has been built in the last 20 years.、Um, and in a recent project I did, is I read the 137 legal challenges to challenge decisions about planning decisions about building wind turbines, to find out what those cases are about. And the classic image of those cases is that they're about NIMBYs versus the kind of global commitment to climate change,、um, and people are often critical of them for that reason. But after reading the 137 cases reported lovingly in this article, is that's not what they're about. In actual fact, many of the cases are brought by energy companies. We've had refusals turned down, and yes, many are brought by locals, but many different types of locals. Donald Trump、um, brought an action in relation to wind turbines off one of his golf clubs.、Um, a yurt owner、um, who was worried about how it would affect their business. Someone concerned about scenery. But more importantly, if we look at the substance of the grounds, what we see. Is there about trying to figure out how do we adjust the details of decision making? So the first big group of cases are actually about how does building a wind turbine relate to other legislative schemes? So, for example, there's a whole set of cases about how building this would relate to Section 66 of the Listed Buildings Act,、um, which says that. You have to have special regard for a listed building and its setting. What does that legally mean when you build a kind of development like this, which is very atypical? So that's the first set of cases. The second set of cases is that in the UK, planning permission always comes with planning conditions,、um, and there are planning policies. And the question is, well, how do you interpret? These type of conditions, and the third set of cases are about well, how do you make good, rigorous decisions about wind turbines? Do you need to do a site visit? Do you need、um, what type of reasons do you have to give? And so, what we see is the legislative framework for this creates a role for the courts in fleshing out and stabilising the transition. And interestingly enough, although two-thirds of the challenges fail and only a, th- a third are upheld, it doesn't matter. It's exactly the same whether you're challenging refusal or whether you're challenging permission. So it's not that the courts are favouring one group or the other. What they're doing is trying to figure out, you know, how do you make a good decision about a new technology and legislation. Allows that. 
And that brings me to my fifth reason for legislation. And that is it unleashes legal imagination. Yeah, now you may think that's a contradiction in terms. Um, I don't think it is. What do I mean by that? Um, many people point out to the fact that climate change is unprecedented. And that's true. Most law has developed with very different problems in mind. I sell something to Rosemary. Rosemary doesn't get what she thought she had paid for. We have a legal dispute. It's about relationships between two people over a set of interests. It's pretty easy to determine the facts. We're not thinking about the future. The situation is not changing. Well, when we get to climate change, we are thinking about many different types of interests. And we're trying to figure out whose interests should we take into account in a legal system. How do we do that? How do we deal with the fact that we have a very sound understanding of the science of climate change, but in terms of think, figuring out what is going to happen in the future, like all exercises of figuring out what's going to happen in the future, that's tricky. And so what we see in not just climate law, but across all environmental law, is the need to start with existing legal frameworks and to develop them with these different problems in mind. And that's not just a case of wishful thinking. It's about imagination. It's thinking, how do we develop rigorous legal ideas for these new contexts? And Australia has led the way in regard to this. So if we think of, you know, Australia was one of the first countries to introduce environmental impact assessment. The idea that in making a decision about a big project, you should think about the environment. Now, that's something that we would think is common sense now. But the first laws were described as setting the law ablaze. Australia was one of the first places to set up environment, specialist environmental courts. And it still leads the way in such kind of institutions. And I could keep on talking about other pieces of legislation, um, but I won't. But that has also led to a rich body of case law built on that legislation, and a rich, rich body of precedent, which is the envy of the rest of the world. So legislation, taking the process of lawmaking about climate change seriously, has the capacity to harness this type of thinking. Okay, so there are my five reasons. Let me now move to what those reasons tell us about what the substance of a piece of climate change legislation should look like. And there are five features of this. The first is coming back to my starting point. Any piece of legislation needs to deal with the tragedy of the commons. Going back to car parking in my street, if they'd just said, would you mind reporting the number of cars? Or 
would you, we'd, we'd like to encourage you to park somewhere else, somewhere else. But you'll still live in the street. <laughs> do, do you mind parking over this other side of Oxford? That was not going to work. You needed to confront that tragedy head on. And that's why, if you look at something like the Victorian climate change legislation, section seven, I think, has as its object, makes very clear that the object of the act is a zero emissions target by 2050. And you see other pieces of legislation, the Climate Change Act in the UK does exactly the same. So any piece of legislation can't dance around the tragedy, it has to confront it. The second thing, going back to my reasons, is it needs to be part of the legislative process. It needs to have the best and brightest of parliamentary council drafting this legislation. Now it's here where you might be thinking, ah yes, but this is where we get into politics again. But I think once, and if, if I take my street as an example, there were lots of people there who kept saying there is no parking problem. But there comes a point where everybody says, yes, there is. It is obvious. And I think recognizing it is important to have political debate. And it is important that that debate recognizes differences. But that debate needs to be grounded in the reality of our planet. Um, and as Bruno Latour, a French sociologist, has just published this recent book, um, which is very French sociology. Um, but his point about, for example, climate change denial is he said, it's as if a group of people don't live on the same earth and don't share the same reality. So in thinking about that politics, it does need it to be grounded in the reality of the situation that we are dealing with. Okay, three. The legislation needs to think about how can it give the calculability that markets so badly need. Now, I've talked a bit about energy markets, but it's not the only set of markets that are going to be affected by this transition to a low-carbon economy. And there are many ways to legally construct markets. My wonderful colleague um, at Oxford, Sanya Bogacivec, um, has written about this and showing how markets are always being co-produced alongside states and they can take many different models. And if, for example, we take the EU emission trading scheme, it was a phased process over time. But what was clear as part of that legislation was the direction of travel. So people in that market knew where to invest, knew what would be coming down the road. Um, my fourth point. Any such legislation needs to recognize that there isn't a magic wand to dealing with climate change, that it needs to be integrated into the legal order, that it needs to deal with disruption. And again, if I take the climate change legislation from Victoria, it's a perfect template 
of that kind of thinking. So section 17 requires decision makers to take into account climate change, not just the climate change decision makers. Section 21 and, and subsequent sections create a set of principles um, and empowers ministers to develop policy guidelines. So such legislation is not just a bare set of rules. It needs to create a structural architecture for good decision-making in this area. And then my fifth point. Such legislation is going to be tricky, and it does require legal imagination. And it does require the best and the brightest of lawyers and others to bring their skills in drafting it. Um, and again, and I, I was commenting before, I did my undergraduate degree in law here in Australia, and I'm very proud of that fact, because Australia you know, has a very long and wonderful legal heritage. And any such legislation needs to build on that heritage. Okay, so there am I, a little bit about what the structure might look like. Two points in conclusion. The first point is what I've outlined is not some hippie leftist plot to destroy the economy. It is a mainstream enterprise that involves Australia exercising its sovereignty and its legal sovereignty. And I think that's important to keep in mind. This is not just about favouring one set of interests. The second point is, and let me come back to the description of legislation, is this is a collective enterprise. Um, this is the bit of the talk which is a bit like in the BBC costume drama, The Aliens Land. You're probably thinking, what is she talking about? Um, this is Ursula Le Guin. Um, Ursula Le Guin, great science fiction writer. She also wrote many wonderful non-fiction essays. And one of my favourite essays of hers is called The Carrier Bag Vision of Fiction. And in it, she makes clear that in hunter-gatherer societies, about 65% of food came from hunting, hunt, from gathering. But the stories told, the paintings on the wall, were not about picking seeds off plants. It was about the hunt with the hero and the spear and the chase and the point of conflict in which there was a winner and there was a loser. And in a sense, when we think about law, we want to talk about cases because that has the excitement of the hunt. It has that dramatic tension. And, and people often, when they want to talk about climate change law, they want to talk about the cases. They don't want to talk about the legislation. But actually, the legislation is important. And I, I'm going to read at length from... Le Guin, because she talks about a carrier bag vision of fiction. Um, so when I came to write science fiction novels, 
I came lugging this great heavy sack of stuff, my carrier bag full of wimps and klutzes and tiny grains of things smaller than a mustard seed, and intricately woven nets which, when laboriously unknotted, are seen to contain one blue pebble, an imperturbably functioning chronometer telling the time on another world, and a mouse's skull full of beginnings without ends, of initiations of losses, of transformations and translations, and far more tricks than conflicts, far fewer triumphs than snares and delusions, full of spaceships that get stuck, missions that fail, and people who don't understand. I said it was hard to make a gripping tale of how we wrested the wild oats from their husks. I didn't say it was impossible. So, in thinking about climate change legislation. We need to be inspired by some of our great thinkers, including French sociologists. We need to think about the legal intellectual heritage we have here in Australia, reflect, reflected in both case law and earlier legislation. We need to think about how the process of transition. Is complex, and it's going to require us to think about a lot of different things. We're going to have to think about reports, about lots of different markets, both within Australia and beyond it. We're going to have to think about people making arguments about taxes. We're going to have to keep an eye on the data. We're going to have to review our legislation. We're going to have to think about the legislation that comes before. We're going to think about legislation in other places. We're going to think about court cases, and we're going to think about our desire for magic wands. And it's going to be challenging, but it's not impossible. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, it's now my pleasure to introduce my colleague at the law school, Dr. Kate Owens. Dr. Owens is going to be offering some reflections on Professor Fisher's paper. She's recently been promoted to the position of senior lecturer, and she's deputy director of our centre, our environmental law centre at the law school. Her research focuses on Australian and international environmental regulation and governance. Particularly in the context of water management and mining activities, oh, thank you, Professor Lister,、um, and I'd also like to thank、um, Prof Professor Fisher、uh, for her tremendous presentation tonight.、Um, no one has done more than Professor Fisher to、um, to draw focus to methodology. In environmental law scholarship,、um, over the years,、um, her work has prompted much self-reflection among environmental law scholars,、um, and her recent work regarding hot law is is no exception.、Um, it's very clear from tonight's discussion、um, that there will be no quick legal fixes or magic wands、um, to the to the climate change problem.
um, with, I, I suppose the best option would obviously be um, globally, globally coordinated measures um, to take immediate action to reduce emissions, um, uh, actions for climate adaptation, um, with all of the heavy lift, lifting done by national governments um, through legislation. Um, but experience over recent years in Australia um, and the US, other countries, um, has shown that, you know, at least in the short term, um, this will be a difficult goal. But conceptualising climate law as hot law um, revitalises our attempts to truly understand, um, from a governance perspective, the nature of this colossal, um, relatively slowly moving, or, although um, that's not so much the case anymore, um, and multifaceted issue. It motivates us to reflect on how we might best govern this problem in an ongoing way. So this notion encourages us to take stock of some of the tools that we already have um, and identify those initiatives that have actually led to meaningful results in the meantime. Um, so significant legal innovations already occurred. Um, Professor Fisher mentioned um, uh, emissions tra emission trading schemes, of course. Um, but the transformation of the global economy needed to avoid uh, dangerous climate change will place immense pressure on our existing legal frameworks, um, which really do stand between us and, and planetary exhaustion. And not much has come of our efforts to prevent climate change so far. Australia is a country that's been unable to reach consensus on even some of the most basic elements of a policy and, and regulatory response to this issue. Um, we're a paradigm example of the political fragility of this issue um, of policy and legal failure. But after the last 10 years of policy chaos, I think Professor Fisher's presentation really encourages us to, to, to not only reflect on the nature of the underlying problem, but also consider some of the examples of climate governance that have worked here, and what those elements might suggest about the nature of hot law and its most meaningful targets. Um, in other words, Australia, um, and being in the, at the, sort of the sharp end of, of policy failure on this issue, um, has really been a, a laboratory for developing the role of law um, in, in hot situations. And I'd like to venture some very, very brief um, reflections on what our experience may suggest in terms of the future development of our, our hot law frameworks. How can we best deploy the law in order to facilitate the transformation that we need. So Professor Fisher's highlighted how in the past, um, Australia has always been at the forefront of environmental law development, um, particularly in the context of natural resources. And one of our particular strengths has been the creation of regulatory institutions, of state-of-the-art, independent statutory agencies. So in the context of climate change, um, I think it's fair to say that two of the initiatives that have actually survived and been able to make meaningful contributions 
have, oh, and on a consistent basis anyway, um, have been the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, or ARENA. So these are agencies that have been created to increase the deployment of, of finance into the clean energy sector um, and accelerate the deployment of, of renewable energy technologies. Um, they're institutions that have been able to get on with their mandate. They've been given the opportunity to get on with their work and they've collectively facilitated um, and coordinated something in the region of $12 billion worth of investment in renewable energy and various low emissions um, and efficiency technologies. And what distinguishes these agencies, I think, um, what, what's made them so successful in climate governance um, is that these institutions have been charged with the creation of visible things, with implementing specific projects um, that, that provide tangible, ongoing benefits and these projects are much, much harder to unwind um, than legislation, which is obviously very important as well, but uh, they are much harder to unwind. So institutions like uh, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and ARENA um, have been created by legislation with a clear mandate, with funding, and have been able to go forward and implement tangible projects with meaningful benefits. And this approach stands in fairly stark contrast to a, a carbon tax, um, which people characterise in negative terms fairly quickly, um, as we all know. Um, and a carbon tax is, is really seen by many members of the Australian public um, as an additional cost on their power bill. So I think that the CEFC um, and ARENA really demonstrate the value of these institutions, these independent institutions, with clear governance frameworks. And this is an approach that could be broadened to other environmentally sustainable forms of, of infrastructure. Another example of enduring success in Australia is the small-scale renewable energy scheme which operates under the Renewable Energy Target. Um, this scheme has been wildly successful in terms of uptake. Um, according to the Clean Energy Regulator, we installed solar panels on our rooftops at a rate of 6.5 per minute in 2017. And although the Liberals dislike subsidising solar, um, they will no doubt continue to subsidise the small-scale scheme because this is a scheme that's caught the public's imagination. It's a scheme in which, again, um, the public can see its outcomes. The results are meaningful and the results are tangible. It's not an initiative that can be criticised by those opposed to, to climate action as just another thing increasing power bills without benefits. So one of the major challenges for our climate uh, law frameworks as hot law frameworks will be to create regimes that create uh, more meaningful and visible outcomes and in which people feel like they're actually a part of something. These elements appear to be the key to the success of some of our most successful um, innovations in Australia. And as we bring in new mechanisms in the future, or new legislative regimes, um, we'll be able to build on ENGERS, a National Greenhouse and Energy Reporting Framework. Um, that, that, that particular scheme 
um, can now provide us with about a decade's worth of important um, baselines and historical information. It's also likely that further coordination will occur at the sub-national level. Um, so, for example, new collaborations are emerging among the world's leading cities. So these, um, these cities are now getting together to act in a coordinated way. Um, and the hope, of course, is that national governments will follow suit. Um, and Victoria, Queensland and, uh, Queensland and the ACT now have their own renewable energy targets and policies. So the challenge now and, and in the future um, will be to develop frameworks that can actually generate momentum, you know, so that we can move towards um, these important pieces of national legislation that we need. And the Australian um, experience suggests that a large part of this governance solution will be to create strong, strong institutions that can deliver tangible outcomes um, that make backsliding very difficult and in creating regulatory programs that can actually activate the public. Thank you. Thanks. I think the, the comment that I would like to make is that we should stop being convinced that nobody else in the world is doing anything. We should rather look to the examples of national governments which are very much doing something, as well as the sub-national, the city governments and so on. And to remember that in December last year, the Chinese government instituted an emissions trading scheme which will be the world's largest carbon market. And they've already had the pilot stage for that market and it has now been officially declared to be a national emissions trading scheme. So the Chinese government has put in place the legislation not only for that, but on all other levels with regard to renewable energy. They are the biggest uh, uptakers of renewable energy in the world as well. And so I think that we should keep looking around the world at examples of other developed and developing countries which have accepted the challenge of passing laws to deal with this problem which we all know is not going to go away. So once again, thank you very, very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.